Well, I don't know how you feel when you consider the big stories that keep finding their way into our news. When you hear about a, a seemingly insolvable war spreading out from Syria. When you see massive numbers of people who are desperate enough to risk their lives traveling to get away, searching for a safer home in another country. When you, you watch on TV the news of a global financial crisis, which few, I think, really understand. Even when you think about the potential for huge change in our own nation and how we relate to the EU or even how we relate to the rest of the United Kingdom, I wonder how it is you feel when you think about these giant stories which dominate the, the news today. How, how do you feel when you think about these stories? I think it's hard not to have stories like these leave us feeling completely powerless. You know, how could I ever do anything about any of these things? I, mean, I just don't have that sort of power or influence or often it seems I don't have any power or influence at all. Hard not to have stories like this leave us feeling powerless. It's hard not to have stories like these leave us feeling completely insignificant. I mean, who am I? And what does it matter what I do? Did, could I really have any impact on things like these? Surely my actions, my life won't really make any difference at all. These things are just too big. I mean, sure, I might vote, but really... That's just a drop in the ocean. Does it really have any impact? It's quite easy to end up thinking this kind of que sera, sera sort of thoughts. Whatever will be, will be. I, it's just what is. So we need to get used to it. It's just the way the world is. We're, we're out of control. We're insignificant. Now, Perhaps you'd call yourself a Christian here tonight. Well, if you would, then we've been singing and hearing about God's power, His sovereignty, we say. And I guess by that, I mean the way in which He's in charge of everything. The way in which He is effectively the greatest King of all, having all power. So sovereign is sort of the way we would talk about that. Well, do you believe that God is sovereign, that He has all this control and power? Like the psalm we read says he is. Like that passage from Isaiah where we heard him speaking, where he himself says, I am. That everything proceeds according exactly to God's commands. Well, if you believe that, can you see how this sovereignty might leave us feeling insignificant? Might leave us feeling inconsequential that it doesn't really matter what we do it won't really make any difference it won't really have any impact on how things turn out or what happens that every action uh, every effort every move we make is just an exercise in futility because God is sovereign he's in control and I wonder if that sometimes doesn't tempt us to take our hands off the wheel a bit you know let go and let God type of thinking. I know God's sovereign, so if I'm meant to find a wife, well then, then I guess I'll find a wife. 
so I really don't need to shave. Or shower, for that matter. Young single men, for the avoidance of doubt, that is a wrong understanding of how God's sovereignty works. But can you see how this idea, this very biblical idea of God's total power and control, can tempt us to take our hands off the wheel? And at the same time, we can disclaim responsibility for what happens because God's in control. We can use God's sovereignty as an excuse for living passive lives. Well, I think God has something to say to us tonight about this. So will you turn with me to Acts chapter 23? It's on page 1120 uh, in these red Bibles, if you've got one of these handy. Page 1120, Acts chapter 23. And we'll read a little together. Now, as you find your way there, let me tell you that we're, we're continuing our series walking through this book, uh, the book of Acts, that tells the stories of the very first churches and uh, how the church expanded. Uh, we're following at the moment the, the life of Paul very closely, who's one of Jesus' first followers, starts out as a key persecutor of the church, going around killing people. Now, remarkably, he's one of the key leaders in the church. That's some turnaround. He's gone all the way back to the cradle of the church in Jerusalem and ran into some of his enemies there. Um, so right now, he's in Roman custody, and the Romans are trying to figure out what to do with him, which is why he's causing so much trouble. We're going to pick up the story uh, at verse 10 in chapter 23. So let's read together. Verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them. Because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone what you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. 
provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix, he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I'd learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present their case, to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. And the next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. And when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. That's where we're going to stop today. Now let's think our way through this just for a moment. Hop back to where we started and look at verse 11 again with me. Verse 11, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Lord, that is um, Jesus himself, has stood near Paul in the night and encouraged him about what was to come. Job done here in Jerusalem. Next stop, Rome. Paul has this encouragement from Jesus, from the Lord himself, that he's going to get to speak for Jesus, even in Rome, the very center of the Roman Empire. And this isn't like a, a kind of fortune cookie type of thing. This isn't, uh, I, I check, checked one out here. It says, a short stranger will soon enter your life with blessings to share. You know, it's not that sort of, mm, it's not like a, one of those horoscopes. This month, your work will be unusually busy. Keep your cool. It's, it's not one of those. It's very specific, isn't it? You've testified for me in Jerusalem. You're going to testify for me in Rome. This is a, a declaration from the Lord himself of what will be. What will certainly be because he is sovereign. Paul is going to testify in Rome, no matter what, no matter how difficult that might seem, no matter how unlikely that might seem, no matter what might seem to make that look impossible, it's going to happen. And immediately after this, we get to hear of this conspiracy forming, which looks for all the world, like it might put an end to this, it might overturn this plan and this statement, more than 40 Jews are set on killing Paul. If you'll forgive the phrase, they are deadly serious about it. They, uh, they're, they're planning to attack him while he's under Roman guard. And that's not a great plan because the Romans are pretty good at this fighting stuff. Probably some of these 40 are going to die in order to get rid of Paul. And they're willing to do that. They are, they are serious. They hate what he is saying and what he is doing so much. They're willing to risk their lives. They bind themselves with this vow not to eat or drink until he's dead. Bit of a silly one. Hope they didn't actually keep that, right? Or there's even more dead people. And then they get the Jewish leaders on board with them. The, the irony here is quite profound. The reason they are so upset with this Paul is that he's a terrible lawbreaker. And yet they themselves are quite happy to break the law to get rid of him. 
take lying in order to get Paul out in the open where they can get at him. Now, hang on, I'm pretty sure there's a law about exactly that. And it's not even a difficult one to interpret. It goes like this, do not lie. So they're quite happy to break the law in order to get rid of this lawbreaker. That's pretty ironic. But then we see God's sovereignty. God's rule, his authority come into play. And uh, the plotters are overheard. Obviously, weren't very sneaky and secret about it. They're overheard not just by anyone, but by somebody who can do something about it and somebody who cares to do something about it. Somebody in Paul's own family. Word gets to Paul, and then it gets on to the Roman commander. And through God's providence, the Romans are, are feeling good towards Paul. I mean, perhaps that's because earlier they misidentified him as an Egyptian terrorist or were about to do something quite unlawful to Roman citizens. So they're disposed towards him. By that evening, there is a veritable army getting Paul out of danger. 470 trained Roman army units against a threat of 40. It's quite unnecessary really, isn't it? It might be as much as half of the entire military garrison in Jerusalem protecting this one guy. The commander isn't taking any chances. And then ultimately Paul gets to Caesarea, the Roman capital. He's delivered from the plot that could have finished him. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, as we follow his story, he is indeed on his way to Rome, where he's going to get to testify for Jesus. It's it's an exciting story. It's a good story. This is one of those you could imagine a movie adaptation quite easily. There's lots of color, right? There's lots of detail, lots of excitement and drama in here. Now, we see this sovereignty we've been talking about on display in this story. God's control, his power, certainly... We certainly see that. But here's the thing I've been struck by this week as I've been thinking and praying about this passage. The thing I want to share with you. Did you notice what Paul did in response? Did you notice that Paul was active rather than passive in the middle of this? Here's what I mean, okay? Paul has this ironclad promise. From the Lord himself that he's going to Rome and he's going to get to speak. It's definitely going to happen. Nothing can stop that. So when he hears the news of a plot against his life. See, I can imagine it working out quite differently. I I can picture the scene like this. Okay, Paul's in the Roman barracks. He's under arrest. Uh, He's wondering what's in store next. And the young family member shows up. He's panicked. Uh, He's out of breath. And he reports this deadly plot to Paul. And then, cool as a cucumber... Paul sits back in his cell, folds his arm between his head and uh, just says, awesome. I can't wait to see how God gets me out of this one. wonder what it's going to be. Is it going to be, you know, angel ninjas? Am I going to suddenly have the strength of the Lord come upon me and pick up a donkey jawbone and sort things out? How's it going to be? Can you imagine Paul responding like that? Can you imagine that? Wouldn't that in some ways be a greater act of faith? Wouldn't that be an ideal way to show that he really believed what the Lord has told him, that he really does trust that God is sovereign, that he really does know that whatever God has planned is exactly what will happen and nothing can stop it? Can you see how that works in the face of God's sovereignty? It might seem spiritual. It might seem rational. It might seem practical to be completely passive. 
God's got it under control. There's nothing for me to do here. He's going to work it all out. And yet, that is not how Paul acts at all. He uses up the credit he's got with the Romans to get them to hear about the plot. He acts, you might say, as if it all depends on him. As if his safe arrival in Rome to testify about Jesus actually depends on him. As if he didn't do something, he might not make it there after all. Now, do you think that Paul does not believe what Jesus told him when the Lord stood by him? Do you think that Paul does not really believe that God is in control of all things? See, Paul doesn't see that there's this tension that we feel between God's sovereignty and his human responsibility to act that one seems for all the world to rule out the other. You see, there is a a paradox here. There are two truths, and they're apparently contradictory. Uh, It's a paradox which I think bites Christians all the time, much more often than you might imagine. If God is sovereign, if he's in control, if what he says, if what he wants is exactly what happens all the time, no question, well then how can we have any part? How do we have any part to play in things? Isn't it vastly arrogant? Isn't it simply misguided to think we could have a part to play? Doesn't suggesting we have a part to play undermine what we say about God's power and authority? Let me show you this in everyday Christian life. Think about prayer, okay? Now, if God is sovereign, if everything is going to go the way he's decreed it, well, why bother praying? If it's going to go his way anyway, right? Whether I pray or not, why bother? And yet, Jesus teaches us to pray. He doesn't even teach us to pray in the abstract. He teaches us to pray exactly, your will be done. Well, of course it will be. Yet he tells us to pray for exactly that. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Hmm, did you see that tension there? Do you feel that? Human responsibility? Pray. Divine sovereignty? Of course his will will be done. There they are. We pray like we've been taught to, and yet we believe God is in control. Do you think Paul prayed he would get to Rome? He certainly was praying he would get to Rome at some point. We read exactly that in the book of Romans, in Romans 1.10. Praying. Okay, there we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Here's another one. What about growing as a Christian? What about growing as a Christian to be more like Jesus? Now, God has told us in no uncertain terms that we will arrive at that destination. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 29. It is going to happen. We are going to become like Jesus. That's the work of God. But at the same time, God calls us to work at it and to work at it hard. Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. Make every effort, he says. Try. The letters at the back of our Bible are filled with these exhortations to work at it, to try 
Think about this morning. Clothe yourself with compassion. As if we could. As if it depended on us. And yet, he has sovereignly decreed that we will be conformed to the image of his son. Or think about, think about speaking to others about Jesus. Now, if God is sovereign, he will save whoever he chooses. And I certainly can't save anyone. Then do I really need to speak to other people about Jesus? Really? Do I need to? Jesus himself says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And they will. Yeah, he tells us at the same time, in no uncertain terms, go and make disciples. Even though we couldn't make a single one between all of us. Every single person who comes to Jesus is a a, a miracle resulting from his direct intervention in their life. Moving them from death to life, from enemy to friend. Perhaps you'll know the story of William Carey. He's one of those kind of great missionaries of the past. And in the late 1700s, he was, um, he was standing up urging a, a group of senior Baptist ministers to support mission to foreign countries, to support going out with the name of Jesus to foreign countries. And we read that one of the older ministers there stood up and interrupted him saying this, young man, Sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. And can you see the sense in that position? We can't save anyone. We can't do anything to make the blind see. We can't make the dead alive. It's in God's hands alone. He doesn't need our help to do this, so let's leave it to him. And yet we are called to speak for Jesus. Perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here tonight. Well, here the same paradox applies to you. Can you bring yourself to life? Can you go from God's enemy to God's friend? No, it's impossible for you to do that. And yet Jesus calls you to repent and believe. Exactly the same paradox. Well, we've got to learn to live within. Even if we can't get our heads around it. See, there are two ways to respond to this sort of thing. One way we can respond is we can say, this just doesn't make sense. Either one's true or the other's true. Certainly not both, right? Either God is really in control, so there's nothing for us. Or we're really responsible, and so God's not in control. That's one way we can respond to this sort of stuff. The other way you can respond is to humbly accept what the Bible tells us is the case, even though we can't wrap our heads around it. We can just humbly accept that it's true. Just because we don't get it doesn't mean it can't be true. We can live in the confidence of God's complete sovereignty, His utter control and power, and yet we can live actively understanding that as humans we are responsible and we have work to do here. You see that? We can, we, we can choose it's only one or the other or we can choose to humbly say yes to both even though we don't understand how that works. Paul acts to see God's sovereign will come about and it's not unspiritual of him to act to see himself delivered from that Jewish plot. It's not a lack of faith 
that he had to act to see himself delivered from that plot. It's embracing this paradox. Calvin puts it this way. He says, Paul has no doubt whatsoever that God is the guardian of his life. But he does not wait until he put out his hand from heaven to perform a miracle. On the contrary, he uses the remedy presented to him. Having no doubt that it is ordained for him by God. So what? Is this just an interesting philosophical idea? Is this just some abstract stuff? I don't think so at all. I think this is very important for us to have this straight in our heads. That it is not unspiritual to act to work towards achieving ends which are quite beyond us, quite outside of our power. Ends which are in God's hands alone. To pursue them with all the opportunities he gives us, with all the gifts and skills and talents he gives us. And you should be very glad that I think this way. Here's why. I firmly believe that the only thing that can change your heart is God's word. That all of the power when I come to speak to you is in God's word. Not in me. Divine sovereignty at work is completely outside my control. But that doesn't mean I don't bother preparing to speak. I just rock up, flip open the book, and we'll see how it goes. You know, just let go and let God. It doesn't mean I don't try to do a better job each time, even though you might not notice it. It doesn't mean I don't try to think about how to communicate clearly, how to make ideas memorable, how to stick them in your heads. I'm just living in this paradox of of God's sovereignty and all these things that are only under his control. And yet, we've been given this human responsibility. God has chosen to use means. I think we have room to embrace this more in many areas of our Christian lives. Think about reaching out to others, okay? Is it unspiritual to try and do this better and better? To try and reach more and more people? To act as if we almost have a hand in achieving what we know only God can do? Surely instead we should embrace our human responsibility to do the very best we can, right? To to hone our language, to think about how we can communicate in ways that connect, ways that resonate well, to remove the barriers that we think naturally people face as they consider the claims of Jesus. Is Is that undermining our absolute belief in the necessity of the sovereign work of God in salvation? Is it acting as if we can save people, taking matters into our own hands, It's just living in this same paradox. It's trying to play the role we've been given as well as we can. Now, I could go on, but I won't. Um, But a picture which I think gives us a helpful way to look at this interplay of God's power and the part we have in it. Think about this. If I don't plant a seed, it won't grow. If I don't plant a seed, it won't grow. If I plant a seed... Am I the one who made it grow? If I plant a seed and diligently water it, am I the one who made it grow? If I plant a seed, diligently water it, carefully fertilize it, study the plant and pick off bugs, am I the one who made it grow? Of course not. It's God that gives the growth. All glory to him. Without him giving the growth, we'd still have just a seed. A muddy one, but still a seed. God chooses to use means to accomplish his ends. Now, we can't change our own hearts. We can't change other people's hearts. But God chooses to use means and we are 
a part of that. Let me bring this back towards us as individuals a little more. Do you believe that God has a plan for you and for your life? Well, he certainly does. He tells us just that in Ephesians 2.10. He says, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He does have a plan for good works in your life. Might you need to take action to see that plan become reality? Absolutely. It's not challenging God's sovereignty. You can't and you won't challenge God's sovereignty. But he's chosen to use human hands to achieve his sovereign plans. And that means that you and I, we have this responsibility to act. To plant seeds. And perhaps God will make them grow. We're going to pray. And then after praying, I'm just going to give us two minutes to think about how this might apply to us personally. So let's pray together first.